Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Acts 10. We've been in a series in the book of Acts entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. We've been in it for probably about a year now, and uh, we, we're in chapter 10. We took a few pauses in it to do other things, uh, but uh, for the most part, we were re-engaged in it, and we're in chapter 10. Last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, uh, and if you miss a week, uh, for whatever reason, we do put up our sermons, all of our sermons and stuff are up at the RHC website, so you can always go back and listen uh, and I, I would prefer that if you miss, uh, that you would go that route and listen, because I don't like to do a lot of recapping. Have you ever, like, sat through a sermon where the guy spent, like, half the sermon just recapping and then gave you about 20 minutes on the new text? That's always just driven me crazy. Uh, so I try not to do that, and when I do, Aaron Filbrin lets me know. Um, he did one time, and I was thankful for that. But anyways, you can go to the website and listen. Last week, we did cover verses 1 and 2. Uh, this morning, we're looking at basically half of verse 3. Yes, I know some of you are thinking, man, what is he going to spend an eternity in this book? Probably. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, it's like, do you ever like have particular things that you entertain in your mind? Like, like maybe some theological thought or something. There's like these seasons where you, you're thinking about one or two things in particular, like, that's, that's where I'm at right now. I've been thinking about things like the gifts of the Spirit and strange fire, and I've been thinking about like hours and time and these things lately. It's weird. I don't, I don't know if God's trying to tell me to get organized or something. I don't know what's going on, but it's, it's weird. I get to this text, and then I, and then I stop immediately after I get just a, a couple of words into it. And, uh, and so it's just a trip. It's just the trip away God works in our minds and hearts and he points us to certain things, and there's certain seasons where we're pondering this particular thing or that particular thing, and then that changes, and then, and then there comes several weeks where we're pondering this thing and all that, and it's weird. Every time that happens to me, I open up the Bible, and there's answers to that, or there's you know, a further af affirmation that God's got me in a particular place with a particular thought. And so that's kind of where we arrived today. I, I really couldn't get past three. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll probably wrap up three, but... For the most part now, we're, we're in three and we're looking at the first little chunk of it. I'd like to begin by asking you, uh, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but you can ponder in your mind as I ask it. You don't have to blurt any answers out. Um, but how precious is your time? How precious is time in general? I mean, time is a, is a phenomenal commodity, is it not? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I never seem to have enough time. To, to do all of the things that I need to do. And I was thinking about it from a silly perspective, like if I had like all the money in the world, that'd be like really cool, but I wouldn't have enough time to spend it. Um, I have lots of work on my plate every week and every day and a lot of things I have to do as you do, and I never seem to have enough time to get those things done. In fact, time is such a precious commodity that people schedule and calendar and they do all these different things and all these organizational things to try to maximize their time, to try to increase their time, right? I mean, time is a major commodity. We are, we're, we're allotted what? Our life is called a vapor on earth. We're allotted a certain amount of time. What is the national average for men? About 70 years. Not in the Baker clan. We drop pretty quick. We got like heart stuff, you know, clogged up, whatever. But I mean, the most you're going to get maybe is probably 70 years by the grace of God. 
And that seems like a lot of time. When you're a child, that seems like an enormous amount of time, doesn't it? When you're a child, you're like, I can't even imagine what that, we're going to be like traveling in vapor locks, you know, and all this stuff. But it goes by really quick, doesn't it? There's never enough time. People are constantly looking for ways to better manage their time so that they can have more of it. We schedule, we calendar, we do all these things. We put forth a lot of effort to try to squeeze out more time out of our days and weeks and months and years. Now, time is important in the Bible. It's an important thing in the Bible. Okay? We just listened to Ecclesiastes 3.1.8 where Solomon literally lists 28 things that we do with our time. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, blah, 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 on and so forth. So time is an important thing in the Bible, and that Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8 passage really sort of illustrates that. Now let me ask you this, another rhetorical, but entertain it in your mind. What hours of the day are your favorite hours? You like the morning hours? Everyone under 25 is going, no. Those are the demon-possessed hours, right? You like the, the daytime sort of hours, you know, like, I don't know, like, between like 10 a.m. and 4? Do you like the evening hours? I mean, what, what hours of the day do you like? I'm kind of a, a night dude, which means I'm not a morning guy, which means it's hard to get down here and to, you know, take a shower and shave and preach and all that because I'm like, because I like to stay up late. I like to read at night. I like to pray at night. I like to watch movies at night. I love my iPad. You know, I sit on that thing at night and watch movies. I was watching one last night. Don't ever watch this movie right before you go to bed. Don't watch Alien. You remember the original? I mean, in the middle of the night, I'm like, ah, you know. It was a nightmare, right? Don't, 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 don't do that. But I like to watch movies. I like to read. I like to talk theology with my wife when she's trying to rest. Um, I like to tuck my kids in. I love tucking in my kids. I turn them into like a super burrito. I mean, I tuck them in so tight. Carne asada's coming out the top, you know. They, they can't move. They're like mummified, you know. So mornings are okay. Afternoons, eh, for me. Evenings, yeah, I like evenings. Any other evening people here? Okay, so there's other vampires here. Good. Now, which sort of hours do you cherish the most? Now, listen, work hours? Somebody said, I heard, yes. Like, what? Uh, you like your work hours? How about your vacation hours? Yeah, exactly. What's that, right? Yeah. You like your work hours? Some people just love their work hours. They love to pour hours and their time into their work. Their work is part of their identity, I suppose, whatever it is. And, and man, I just love to engage in work. Some people just love their vacations. I don't know of anyone who doesn't love their vacations unless you get like that flu on your way to the vacation. Have you ever had that happen? Like you're driving to Disneyland and all of a sudden, blah, you know, and it's like, this is not going to be good for three days in Disneyland, you know. Or you go to this vacation destination and it's not all that it cracked, it's cracked up to be. But we love our vacation hours. How about your family hours? You like your time with your family? It's pretty good stuff, isn't it? That's a good time. Just hanging out with your, your wife, if you have one. Uh, 
and that means single, whatever. I didn't mean that to be weird. Uh, your spouse, your children if you have them, or maybe your parents, maybe your siblings. That's good times, right? That's good times, man. How about church hours? You like those hours when you come down to the house of the Lord? And like Bruce is like, he's giving me like a Clinton thumbs up. He's going, he's like, yes, the church hours. You like the church hours? You come down and worship and sing and praise the Lord and hear from his word and all that. How about the sleep hours? Some of you are saying no. And I know from personal experience, my wife loves her sleep hours. Last night, she's all, I'm looking forward to going to sleep. <laughs> Who says that? She does. She was in bed and she's like, I'm so tired. I'm, I'm just so looking forward to going to sleep, right? And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like the one-year-old that just nursed, I'm not going to sleep, you know, I'm fighting it, you know, and I, I'm like, there's something more I can be doing, I can watch more of Alien, <laughs> right? Some people just love their sleep hours. In fact, there's some in the Bible that are called like sloths, you know, they just, that's all they want to do. What do they call them, the sluggard? It's all they want to do is sleep all the time and sleep and sleep and sleep. Funny thing is, these people that love to sleep all the time, they're not getting any more beautiful. I don't get it. Beauty sleep, right? Get it? It's a terrible joke. But some people love their sleep hours. I like good sleep. I like good rest. So time is important in the Bible. Hours are important in the Bible. The word hour or hours appears no less than 99 times in the approved version of the Bible, the ESV. 99 times the word hour or hours shows up in the ESV. I counted them. I could be off. It could be a little more. It could be a few less. I think that's interesting. That's interesting. 99 times. Now, it only shows up two times in the Old Testament. Hour or hours. So out of 99, you have 97 times in the New Testament. Now there are, like, let me give you just a handful of examples of hours in the New Testament. Just read a couple of scriptures to you where we see hours or hour. Matthew 6, 27. And which of you, by being anxious, Jesus said, can add a single hour to his life? It's a great passage. I love that passage. Don't spend all your time worrying and in anxiety, because you can't add any time to your... I mean, worry is like actually robs you of time. You know, 1 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12, Paul wrote, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Um, you are held in honor, but we are... We in actually disrepute. And he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst... We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. He's talking about the apostles. How about in Revelation 14, 6 to 7? Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, I love that, to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, who's the gospel for all, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because what? Because the hour of judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's three little examples. 
Now, according to the scriptures, or according to really the New Testament scripture, and according to the Jewish, ancient Jewish calendar, there were three very important hours of the day. And they are the third hour. You'll see that in Scripture. You'll see that in the Gospels. You'll see that in the New Testament over and over. Things like the third hour, which was 9 a.m. You'll also see the sixth hour. That's an important hour in in the New Testament. The sixth hour, that's 12 p.m. And then you'll see the ninth hour. The ninth hour being like their evening hour, 3 p.m. Those are three very, very important hours, and they're constantly referenced in the New Testament. It's very interesting to me. The New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, constantly referenced these special hours in their writings. In fact, the word hour appears 81 times in the Gospels and Acts alone. So the majority of the use of the word hour or hours is in the Gospels and in Acts. If you go back through the Gospels and Acts, you will see how the authors wrote, at about the third hour, this happened. At about the sixth hour, that happened. At about the ninth hour, a little bit of this and a little bit of that happened. It's very interesting. Why did the writers of Scripture, why did they include the hours and times? Well, obviously they thought that it was important to establish timelines so that they could establish an accurate chronology. These men who wrote Scripture, who wrote, especially in the Gospels and Acts, they were recording historical events. It was necessary to write down the times. Why did they... Record according to the Jewish calendar. Why, why were this? Why the third, the sixth, the ninth, these Jewish references and things? Because scripture was written to and in within a Jewish context. Okay, and the writers were Jewish with the exception of Luke. Some say he was, I don't think so. But Luke was a historian which means that he had to record things as they played out within a Jewish context. A good historian is going to step into the context, the ancient context or the previous context. He's going to step into it to the best of his ability to record the data and the facts and the way that things played out. And that's precisely what he's done. Now, our text contains one of these hour references. Luke included it because it's important to the story of Cornelius and to the world. Not just to Cornelius, but it's an important hour to the world because of its significance, because of what took place during it. I believe that the hour of his mentioning represents one of the most important hours in all of history. Not because of what happened with Cornelius, per se, but because of what happened with Jesus during the same hour on a different day several years earlier. The title of this sermon is The Ninth Hour. The Ninth Hour. After reading verse 3, I will unpack six things that happened during the ninth hour. 
These are the things that make the ninth hour so incredibly significant and important to the storyline. They're significant to the context, to the storyline, to the story of Cornelius and to the world in a more general sense. So I'm going to read Acts 10.3, pray, and then we'll look at the verse, and then I'll begin to unpack these six things. Verse 3.10, about the ninth hour of the day. You see it there in your Bible? About the ninth hour of the day. He, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. That's where it stops. Father, open our hearts and minds this morning, Lord. Time is an important thing. But what makes time most important is what you achieved for sinners. You stepped into time to redeem sinners. And you did specific things according to the gospel in the gospel at specific times. These truths, these things that we will learn today are vitally important for our own faith. Vitally important for the world. Vitally important to this key story which represents a turning point in redemptive history as you begin to bring the gospel to non-Jewish people, Gentiles like me. Impress these truths upon our hearts, God. May we be transformed by them, changed, secured in you. Achieve all your purposes here this morning, Jesus. We love you, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Again, going back through it, and like I said, we'll cover the first half today and the second half in the very near future, about the ninth hour of the day. Stop right there. Luke is a thorough researcher and historian. In verse 3, he begins to provide us with not only the account of Cornelius' miraculous vision, but with the time that it took place, right? The ninth hour. Are you one of those people that believes that God puts those little nuancey things in there for a reason? Do we now understand because he puts those things in there for a reason that there's a purpose, that all of those little nuancey contextual things help to catapult the truth of sections to its highest level? And when we teach topically and never engage in context, we don't teach the Word of God rightfully? The Word of God is not meant to be taught in such a fashion that I generate some topic on the outside and throw verses at it. It renders the Word of God in so many ways. I, I can't say this completely because the Word of God is powerful, even when it's mishandled, but in so many ways, it renders it powerless. Because the context, the things that were written, the nuance, all of the little details help to support and gird up and maximize the truth of God's Word, the principles that are here. And when we don't study the Word of God in context, according to the storyline, we miss out on so much. And we minimize its transformative effects. Now Luke put the ninth hour in here for a reason. Six things. And yes, this sermon will be very practical and very topical in a way. 
but we're going to hold it in context. <clears throat> Number one, the ninth hour was a designated prayer time for Jewish people. The ninth hour was a designated prayer time for Jewish people. So immediately what triggers in our minds is that this vision that came at the ninth hour was during the time that Cornelius was in prayer. He may have been a devout, not fully Jewish, a God-fearer, but he still lived according to some of those Jewish principles, Judaistic principles. He was praying when this happened. And there's a great little side truth there that God actually does things when we're in prayer. This is when he gets the vision. He's not out, remember he was a, a centurion, he wasn't out on maneuvers training the Roman soldiers or doing any of these other things. He wasn't, you know, playing, you know, tickle monster with his kid. He wasn't doing any of those things. He was actually praying when he received the vision. God does things during prayer. The ninth hour was a designated prayer time for Jewish people, all Jews were required, and even the half-Jew Hellenists and even the devout types would follow these patterns. They were all basically required to pray every day, during the morning, during the afternoon, and during the evening. Morning prayer took place during what? The third hour, 9 a.m. Afternoon prayer took place during the sixth hour, 12 p.m., lunchtime. And evening prayer took place during the ninth hour, 3 p.m. The idea behind this was to unite all of the people of God, scattered or unscattered, scattered meaning not in Jerusalem. It was, the idea was to bring them all together in prayer at the same time. All of God's people were to be praying during those specific designated hours to God at the same time, no matter where they were, no matter where they lived. No matter what country they were in, Jews from all over the world would stop doing what they're doing and pray at 9, 12, and 3. Where do you think Muslims got the idea for that? You've seen on TV and the newscasts and stuff, there's certain times during the day that they bow to, I think, the East or wherever and, and pray. Where do you think they got the idea to do that? It's from, you know how much Islam borrows from Judaism, tremendous amount of things. So that's the idea behind it. Now, Cornelius, like I said, was a devout, which means partial convert to Judaism. He was like half Jewish. To, to become literally completely converted, he needed to be circumcised and then baptized. But even as a kind of wannabe half Jew devout type, he pretty much obeyed the traditions. I don't know if he ascribed to all of the law because devout types technically did not follow all the commandments. But he did devote himself to some of these practices and things. And he was one of these guys that prayed during the times that the Jewish people prayed. It's interesting. That's what we see him doing here in the text. He was praying during the ninth hour because it's a designated prayer time. 
You can begin to see now why these third hour and, and sixth hour and, and ninth hour are important and why they're repetitive in Scripture. When we look back in the book of Acts, we saw Peter going during this particular hour to Solomon's portico, to the temple to pray. At the sixth hour, at the third hour. In fact, Peter went three times a day to the temple when he was stationed in Jerusalem. He's out traveling now in our context. He's out, you know, in the storyline. He's up in Caesarea. But when he's in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple at three, at six, the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. Very interesting. So we can kind of see some stuff here happening. Ninth hour is a designated prayer time for Jewish people. We see Cornelius, kind of the wannabe half-Jew, praying. That's when he receives the vision Number two, the ninth hour was when, and this is really interesting. We're going to go into this in some detail. The ninth hour was when the evening sacrifice was made. The ninth hour, the evening hour, the ninth hour, three o'clock. Every morning and evening, there were worship services held at the temple in Jerusalem. The morning service took place at 9 a.m., and the evening service, as I said, took place at 3 p.m. During the services, the temple priests and some of their lay people would lead all the people that would gather there through a series of spiritual procedures and practices. Basically, a worship service would take place every day. It was an everlasting thing that they had to do, the sacrifices. Every day they had to sacrifice an animal. And if you lived in Jerusalem, the, the cool thing is that you could go down there and to the temple during morning and, and, and evening, and there'd be an animal sacrifice and this really neat service. And then you could go down at noon for, for prayer. But listen to some of these things that the people were led through when they came into the temple during morning, more particular during the ninth hour. The services began, I had to do a lot of research to come up with these. It's not easy to track down how the worship service went, you know, 2,000 years ago in the Jewish temple. I don't know why I just said that. Maybe I'm saying, please appreciate the work. I don't know what I'm saying. My hope and my identity is not in my ability to preach. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. The services began with public prayer. Okay? And their prayers were usually a prayer of thanksgiving and then petition. That's how they started. Kind of praising God, thanking Him, and then petitioning Him for whatever their desire was. And we know... Then it was, deliver Israel, please, God, come, send the Redeemer. Jesus wasn't him to us, you know. And so the services began with that. And then the altar was prepared. They had to burn off and clean off the sacrifices from the day before and prepare the altar. And then the sacrificial lamb, unblemished lamb, was brought in and slaughtered. And then the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the altar and at the base of the altar. Every day this took place, morning and evening. Okay, and then the lamps of the golden lampstand were refilled and trimmed. Now, they had an incredibly organized, systematic way of doing these things. They would cast lots in the morning, and this priest would be assigned to this duty, this one would be assigned to this duty, and each one would be like go through these robotic motions of doing these different things. It's phenomenal. And they had to deal with the, the lamps and trim them. back. They had to keep them burning, but they had to trim them and, and fill them and all that while trying to maintain them burning. And then incense and burning coals from the altar 
were placed on the golden altar, which was in or very close to, I think it was inside, the most holy place. They had this amazing kind of ark-looking thing that had all this gold inlay and everything, and then it had a place on top where you could put um, a basin, and like on the basin, in the basin, it was a big basin, in the basin they would put coals and they would put the incense, but they wouldn't mix them yet, but they'd put them on both sides. And so it's part of the sequence. They'd get that ready. And then the worshipers, all the people that gathered, would uh, basically leave the inner court where these things, where the altar was, where these things were taking place. They would leave the inner court, move into another section. There could be hundreds, if not thousands. And then they would bow down on their faces and spread their arms out fully prostrate, and they would be silent. They would say nothing. And, and literally, I was reading from Alfred Edersheim, which is one of the great... Jewish historians, and he said you could hear a pin drop in this place with thousands of people in there. There was not the squeak of a mouse. Pretty amazing. The Gentile section was probably outside, and that's where all the partying was going on. I don't know what was going on, you know, and the Jews are like, I don't know what was going on. But it was quiet in this spot. Unbelievable, the reverence. Okay, so the worshipers go out, and they bow prostrate, and it's, it's there's a time of silence, and during that time of silence, the incense and the coals were mixed on the, golden altar, on the golden altar by the chief officiating priest. And obviously that would be the smoke that would come up from the most holy that God would, supposedly he would come and indwell. And he would smell that. Pretty amazing. People would be bowed silent, then the incense would start to burn. And then the priest, once they started burning it, the priest led the people in a blessing from Leviticus 6, 24 to 26, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then the people would sort of respond with, Blessed be the Lord God the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. So while the smoke's going up, they'd have this thing that they would repeat and say. Silence and then that. And then the, the animal, which this happened in between all of this stuff, the animal, once it was slayed and the blood was spread, they would take the animal and hang it on a hook, and then they would cut it up into sections, into like meat, like a butcher would do. And then once this blessing uh, was basically done, they would take the meat and they would salt the meat and then they would take the meat and then they would burn it on the altar. And there's the blood offering, if you will, or the offering of the meat, the offering of the animal being smoked out, burned and consumed and brought up to God in the, in the way of smoke. Very interesting. And then once the meat was, the salted meat was thrown on the altar and burned, that's the burning of the animal. Isn't that interesting? I used to think they cut the throat, they bled it out, and then threw it on there and burned it. No, 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 they did that last. That was the last thing they did. And then once they put the animal on the altar and burned it, and then the music began. You know, whatever. The worship band took over. You know? I don't think they looked like that. They had the curls, you know, and... Yamaka, you know, I don't, just they had worship music. That was stupid. And what they did was every day they sang a different psalm. They sang a psalm. This was an everyday thing at the temple in Jerusalem. Every day this took place. And on the Sabbath they did two animals at a time rather than one. 
every day. Crazy. The sequence of events, the people being present and all these things taking place. The ninth hour was one of the hours where this worship service took place in Jerusalem. Every day. Isn't that interesting? What a sequence. What a, what a, what a bunch of things they did and had to do just to make some temporary pause. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't a full atonement. The blood of animals can't save anyone completely. It can't completely atone for sin. It was like to, I don't know, generate a period of time where God wouldn't demolish them. Every day they had to do this. It just makes me so thankful for Jesus. I can't even imagine going to this. I couldn't even get past the animal getting cut up. I'd be like, you know, I get woozy at Winco in the meat aisle, especially when I walk by the tongue. It's like, ah, oh! or the tripe. Ugh! It's incredible what they had to do. Third thing, the ninth hour was the hour, and this is where it just gets amazing. The ninth hour was the hour that Jesus breathed his last breath and died on the cross. Well, it just makes you wonder, did God send Cornelius this vision by pure happenstance during the ninth hour? I mean, it was his designated prayer time. It was the time where sacrifices were made. It was the time that the Lamb of God was sacrificed. Sounds like happenstance to me. You think God was being strategic with this man that he was about to preach the gospel to for the first time and show him Jesus, the one who was slayed during the ninth hour? You know, Jesus died on the cross during the ninth hour. At the same time, the evening sacrifice was made, Mark 15, 34 to 37. But the night Jesus died was a special night because it was the night where the Passover lambs were slaughtered. So it wasn't just your typical, you know, worship night where we kill an animal. It was where the whole nation brought all their animals down to the temple to have them slayed to cover their sins. Hundreds of thousands of people, I would say, maybe even into the millions. How many animals? One per family? Some families couldn't afford a lamb. But there were a lot of animals being slaughtered. The night Jesus died was a special night. It was the night where the Passover lambs were slaughtered. There were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and pilgrims assembled in Jerusalem from all over the world. They had been there for the entire week and, and they were celebrating and anticipating the moment when they would bring their Passover lambs to the temple to be sacrificed. On the final night of the feast, they took their animals to the temple. The priests then began sacrificing the animals at what? The ninth hour, which was the hour that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died on a cross at Golgotha, which could literally be seen from the altar at the temple. Golgotha overlooked it. The, 
people at the temple by the altar could see Jesus being executed on the hill right on the other side of the wall. They could hear one another. They could hear the people worshiping at the altar. They could hear the people mourning and weeping, worshiping at the cross, which was an altar. The people present at the crucifixion could actually hear and see the people at the temple worshiping and vice versa. Jesus himself could see the temple, the altar, and the worshipers because his cross faced the west. As he's hanging on that cross, he can see the altar. He can see the people in the distance. He can hear them. Now, you may recall what happened when Jesus breathed his last breath. The temple mount shook, and the veil that separated the most holy place from the inner court was torn in two from top to bottom. God interrupted their worship service, didn't he? Ah, you got something going on over here. I got something going on over here. You see over here? God was diverting their attention away from these temporary lambs to the everlasting lamb. He turned the people's attention away, I guess, to some degree, to his son. One of Jesus' executioners, a centurion, not Cornelius, another guy, actually put two and two together. He saw the worshipers at the temple. He probably hated this time of year as a centurion in the area. But he saw the worshipers entering into the temple area and bringing their lambs. He saw the worshipers. He saw the lambs. He saw the Lamb, not lambs, not plural. The lamb on the cross. He felt the earthquake. He heard Jesus speak. He saw Jesus bow his head and die. And then he replied, truly this man was the son of God. It all came together for this guy. He may have been the man that drove the nails in the hands of Jesus. He could see the temple and what they were doing. He saw Jesus right here. He was at the foot, probably casting lots for his clothing. And somehow it all came together. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus breathed his last during the ninth hour. Four. The ninth hour was the hour that Jesus purchased salvation with his blood for those who repent and believe. This is where it gets a little more universal and applies to the rest of the world. We've heard things that are in the context of Cornelius' storyline. Here's where it broadens. In order for people to experience and enjoy salvation, a price had to be paid to satisfy our sin debt to God. The blood of bulls 
was determined by God to be the necessary commodity by which a person's sins would be somewhat covered, but this was a temporary thing. Hebrews 10, 1-18 makes it clear that the blood of bulls cannot completely or permanently remove a person's sins. They cannot completely remove their sins or the debt that they owe to perfect, a perfect, the perfect, holy God. If the blood of bulls could perform such a task, then why did animals have to be offered every day and multiple times a year at special feasts? No, with animals, it was a temporary thing, which means it had to be perpetual. Every day, animals had to be offered every day. Some form of atonement had to be made every day. And several times during the year, when you bring your own animal that you raised and you loved and you cared for it and you weep over when it's slaughtered, temporary. Now, Hebrews 10, 118 illustrates that so well. Hebrews 10, 118 also illustrates that the blood of bulls can't do the job, but it also declares definitively that only the blood of Jesus had the worth and value to accomplish such a task. While on the cross, during the ninth hour, Jesus, the Lamb of God, bled and died, and His blood paid for the sin debt owed to God once and for all. Once and for all, for all who repent and believe. That's good news. I'm not sure what sequence we would be in right now or if we were going old school. Maybe I'd be drawn and quartering the animal right now in front of you and salting it. That'd be pretty gross. Jesus, Jesus was slaughtered. His blood purchased salvation for all who believe, the elect. That's good news. That's the gospel. The ninth hour, number five, the ninth hour was the hour that Jesus exchanged, I love this doctrine, exchanged his perfect righteousness for the sins of those who repent and believe. You know, prior to the fall of man, prior to sin entering the world, Adam and Eve held a perfect righteous standing before God. That standing was upheld and maintained through their perfect obedience to God's law. If they breached the law, broke the law, they would lose their righteous standing and surely die. Unfortunately, is it really an unfortunate thing? (laughs) How else can you experience the grace of God without sin? But, unfortunately, I suppose, they breached the law. They ate of the fruit. They broke their covenant. They became sinners and they made everyone else sinners and they lost that righteous standing for themselves and for everyone else. No one is righteous, not one, because of what they did. 
because of what they did and because of your own sin. There isn't one person in here without sin. Now today, people try to earn righteousness through a whole cadre of things. They try to earn some righteous standing with God through doing good deeds. We talk about that very often here at RHC. They try to earn a righteous standing with God through religion. I joined a religion, and now I'm a part of a religion, and I do good things in that religion, and and I pray certain things in that religion. I read certain things in this religion. People try to earn it through abstinence from things like sex and profanity, alcohol, drugs, caffeine, gambling, and band-driven worship because it's of the devil. (laughs) We have one fundamentalist here. Hopefully the gospel will take seed today. People join religions and, and, and to hold a righteous standing, they, they abstain from caffeine because ultimately caffeine casts this entire universe into sin. I don't know about you, but the angels sing holy, holy, holy every night. I think they've got like some strong rocket fuel coffee going on up there. I don't know how they do it. Dark roast. People abstain from things like sex, profanity, alcohol, drugs, caffeine, gambling, and band-driven worship. Some people make a huge deal about band-driven worship. If there's an instrument on stage, whoa, they're not right with the Lord. And some people try to earn their righteousness through church attendance. I go to church all the time. In fact, I recently had a conversation with my mother who started attending a local Catholic church, and they've been telling her over and over and over that if she misses and doesn't continue to come, that she'll lose her salvation. Like, you can't be saved unless you attend. If you don't attend, you can't be saved, which is complete works righteousness. I told her, Mom, that's not what it's about. Oh, I know, honey. Okay. How about through serving at the church? You know, I'm getting my righteousness by doing these things for you, Jesus. Or how about giving? I give a lot, Jesus, more than most people I would imagine. I just give, I give, I give. I give so much of my treasure. All in an effort to earn righteousness. People try to earn their righteousness through homeschool. I can't have my kids at that school. I've got to have them at home, and, and it would not be right for me to have them in some public school or anything. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to homeschool. For crying out loud, I have three kids at home that are homeschooled. It's like the kettle calling the whatever black or however that dumb saying goes. We didn't pull them out because <gasps> they can't say God in the pledge. They've never even gone to public school as far as I can remember. Maybe they did a couple of years at Hart Ransom. But some people... Here's where it gets bad. They ascribe, they attach righteousness before God to homeschooling their kids. See, that's where it gets shifty. In order for me to be right with God, I have to pull my kids out of these environments that are secular, that are unholy, 
that are ungodly, that are blah, 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 blah. Some people take that to such an extreme, not in the homeschool realm, but they become monks. I can't even walk around and breathe the same air that these unsaved people who hate Jesus breathe. It makes me unrighteous. It makes me dirty. Homeschool is not a bad thing, but if you're trying to earn righteousness through it, if you're trying to somehow please God with it and obtain some sort of standing with him based upon that, then you're in trouble. Some people try to earn their righteousness through wearing special clothes and head coverings. Well, what are you wearing there? Well, that's my, uh, my religious jumpsuit. What happens? Makes me clean. Oh, why do you got that thing on your head there? Well, I, I can't. It's, it's right for me. I, I, I'm, I can't be right before God if I, if I don't wear this thing. And there's just a, a whole variety of ways that people dress and, and don't wear things or put things on and stuff. And somehow they think that God looks down as if he's not anywhere. He looks down and goes, oh, good, they got their head covering on today. I can bless them. They're right with me today. Ah, oh, they don't have it on. Put the bonnet on right now. Hurry. Okay, we're good. And these are just some ways that people try to earn righteousness. All of these things amount, however, to nothing in terms of earned righteousness. Isaiah wrote that they are nothing more than filthy rags. If you were to take all of the good deeds of people of all time and pile them before God, they wouldn't even cause him to bat an eye. Oh, they got my attention. Look at this Tower of Good Deed Babel. Our good deeds mean nothing to him. They do not move him. They do not persuade him or compel him. In fact, he actually records them. He writes them down in a log for the day of judgment. Left to ourselves and to our own works. We are utterly helpless and hopeless. We cannot under any circumstances by ourselves generate a form of righteousness, the form of righteousness that is needed to become reconciled to God and rescued from impending doom. Enter in God incarnate. God came down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ on a divine rescue mission. One of the mission objectives was to earn righteousness for unrighteous sinners through perfect, sinless living and obedience to the law. The demands of the law are so great that only God himself could meet them and consequently receive the glory for doing so. And that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came to obey and fulfill the law. Do what we could never do. We can't uphold one commandment. Jesus came to earn our righteousness so that we could become reconciled to God and rescued from our much-deserved doom. Enter in the ninth hour. During the ninth hour, Jesus made what we call the great exchange. He exchanged his perfect, 
righteousness for our sin and unrighteousness for all who repent and believe. No matter what you do, you cannot earn a righteous standing with God on your own. And that's what makes the gospel so significant and even the ninth hour so significant in that Jesus up to the ninth hour earned it, obeyed, did everything perfectly, never breached one law, never sinned, did it perfectly. And then he imputes his righteousness to our account. He gives us the righteousness that we need to have a right standing before God. It's not enough just to have his blood spilled and have your sins removed. You need something implanted where the sins were removed. You need something else put in place. It's his righteousness. During the ninth hour, that's exactly what he did. Because of what he did during the ninth hour, we can have, through repentance and faith, a perfect standing, a perfect standing before God. We are actually restored to the Edenic or pre-fall state. When God looks upon us, he sees no sin whatsoever. Even though you continue to engage in sin, you become, you engage in this battle against sin by faith. When he looks upon you, he doesn't see sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. That's good news. <laughs> That's the gospel, man. <sighs> Pretty amazing, some of the things that took place during the ninth hour, huh? Again. Just happened to visit you during the ninth hour, Cornelius. Really? Number six. This is huge, too. I mean, every, every time I get to a point, I go, this is huge. Which one's bigger than the other? Well, if it's the gospel, they're all equally massive. Six, the ninth hour was the hour that our debt to the law and its demands were canceled out. This is huge. This particular blessing, salvation blessing, is sort of a byproduct or an extension of the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, our debt to the law, by repentance and faith, we believe in Jesus because he obeyed the law perfectly, our debt to the law has become rendered void. It's nullified, it's canceled. Every sinner is in debt to God because of their breaches of the law. But during the ninth hour, Jesus ended. I mean, he took it away. We don't owe. Everyone who's outside of Jesus owes. We are no longer bound by or to the law because we are bound to Christ. Most Christians know and understand this, but for some reason this Truth seems to fall short of fully transforming our thinking and behavior. The reason is probably because we are earners at the core of our being. And that's just our default mode is to earn. We are grossly, grossly meritocratic. Our homes, churches, schools, businesses, and society are all structured after some form of merit system. Are they not? Good behavior at home 
gets rewarded, does it not? When your kids do the right things, obey, do what you say, do the chores, do the work, whatever those things are, they get rewarded. What is it? That's a form of merit. That's a merit system. Good behavior brings good blessing. Acclimates, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, you just, you just, you hook them up. Did I say acclimates? Did I make that up? Accolades. I make up words. Obedience to church leadership is rewarded. Yeah, it is. Especially among staffers. Somebody tells you to do something that's up higher in the chain and, and you obey and you do it, you, you, you get rewarded for that. If you don't do it, you get what I often got, and that was a kick in the rear end. So even obedience to church leaders is rewarded. There's a merit system there. Hard work at school is rewarded. Usually you get good grades, and you get the praise that comes with the good grades. And, and then when you get home, mommy and daddy are so proud and so excited. What do they give you for a D minus? What do they give you for A's and B's? Some of them for B's are like, oh, I can't believe you got a B. You're, you're dead to me, kid. Really? Yeah. So your identity is wrapped up in your kid's grades. Shame on you if that's how you feel, that your kid can't. But hard work at school is rewarded, is it not? How about productivity at work? That's rewarded, isn't it? Especially in sales. You close some deals, you get some commission, boss gives you a hug, gives you a trip to Vegas where you blow all your money you just earned. Giving to society, being a productive member in society is rewarded. Boy, if you do it enough and you make enough of an impact, you can get a Nobel Peace Prize for doing it in a million bucks. I mean, the, the, our homes, our churches, our culture, our world, it, it is all, I don't know if we'd say governed, but it is based upon a merit system. Everything is about doing and earning and those who do well and earn well get rewarded well. For crying out loud, that is the biggest Americanism on the planet. That is the, the, the American dream, is it not? You can come here and you can be productive and you can earn. If you don't, then you can depend on the government now. I know it's political, but I don't care. Maybe the government doesn't come through for you. I don't know how. Maybe it just keeps printing money. But that's our culture, is it not? We live in a merit-based culture. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad, right? In that doing good behavior and being rewarded and all that. How is that like demonic? It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think the Bible even commends good behavior, does it not? Have you ever read the Proverbs? You know, good behavior should be rewarded. So it's not that this is necessarily a bad thing. The Bible even commends these things, but the Bible never, never ascribes any value to things that are done apart from faith. You hear me? See, that's the difference. The Bible may commend good behavior and all that, but good behavior doesn't necessarily buy you a righteous standing. It doesn't buy you something. It doesn't, you don't get something ascribed to you that you truly need. It doesn't reward you in that way. Anything done apart from faith is filthy rags. So no matter how much good behavior, no matter how, no matter how many good things you do, all that, if they're done apart from faith, they don't equate to anything. 
See, our problem is, is that the merit system that we live in that necess isn't necessarily a really bad thing, I suppose. We want good behavior and all those things, but it bleeds into faith. It bleeds into Christianity. It bleeds into grace. It bleeds into all of these things. It transfers from regular daily living in my home to this is how I have to behave with God in order to get something from him. In order to get from point A to point B, I have to perform. How many Christians live this way? Most. In fact, that's the mantra of so many churches today. Do and receive. Why didn't you receive what you wanted? Because you don't have enough faith. Or you didn't do enough good things. That's why you got what you got. That's why you got that illness. That's why you didn't get that promotion. You see, what happens is we take the merit system of the world, and we apply it to faith, we apply it to grace, we apply it to mercy, we apply it to salvation. It bleeds over. We don't cut it off at the head and say, no, there's no merit, there's none of that in salvation. We blend them together. And then our faith and our religion and our Christianity becomes works-based. I have to perform. Isn't that what we do? You see how we blend them together? Not necessarily bad things, but when we attach them to faith and to salvation and to grace, they become a horrible thing. We become earners and works righteousness sorts of people. You know, faith is the requisite. It is true that God blessed Abraham for his obedience, but it was Abraham's faith that God counted as righteousness. You have read the story you know how many people misinterpret that? Because he did, God blessed him. No, because he believed God blessed him. The exercising of simple faith brought the blessings of God, not his actions or works. His faith actually produced good works, and God blessed that. But it wasn't in the reverse. Most Christians claim to understand these things, but their lives and behavior contradict their testimony. Why? Because we're earners. When we gaze upon, listen, when we gaze upon the law of God, okay, when we gaze upon the law of God, we ponder how we might, this is actually what we do, we ponder how we might uphold each of those ordinances. <laughs> That's what happens when we look at the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. We look at them and say, how might I be able to better do these things this week or today? I haven't been loving my neighbor well. I haven't, whatever the law is. That's typically what Christians do when they look at the law. When we look at the law, we strategize, we plan, and we work, and we work, and we work. All because we believe that adherence to the law will earn us more of God's love, more of God's blessings, more of God's favor, and more of heaven. Maybe a bigger mansion with a bigger dinner table. Isn't that what we do? Let me ask you this. What is the most popular symbol of all time? Think of a symbol. What's the most popular symbol of all time? There's one hanging in this room. See it right there? Is that not? Images 
It's the cross. Images of the cross are everywhere in churches, in art, and in fashion. What gave the cross its popularity? Jesus, who is hands down the greatest, most amazing individual to ever live. Even a lot of seculars believe that. But the cross is vastly different from how many portray it today. The cross is actually a horrific invention that was created for the purpose of executing criminals. Jesus, an alleged criminal, was slaughtered like an animal on a cross. Now here's what's amazing. When Jesus died on the cross during the ninth hour, Colossians 2.14 says that our debt to the law and its legal demands were canceled out. Canceled can actually be translated as obliterated in Greek. If you are in Christ, your debt to the law and its legal demands has been obliterated, obliterated, completely destroyed. And yet, and yet, and yet, we are driven, and yet we are driven, some of us more than others, to examine the law and attempt to obey it so that God will love and bless us. We give in to performance and we attempt to earn. But how can a person, how can a Christian pay back a debt to an account that has been permanently closed or obliterated? I'm pleading with you. You're trying to put works-based stuff into an account that doesn't exist for you. How can a person pay back a debt to an account that has been closed or obliterated? There is nothing to pay back and no account to deposit your good works in. Jesus paid your debt and closed your account. It is sealed in him for eternity. Amen. Therefore, listen carefully. Therefore, when we gaze upon the law, we shouldn't see a list of things we need to do. We should see a list of things that Jesus did on our behalf. And when we gaze upon the cross, we should, we should see our debt to the law and its legal demands nailed there with Jesus. Stop performing. I beg you. If, if you think that working hard and doing all these things and obeying all these things and all of that is doing anything for you between you and God, you are insulting His Son. That account's gone. It's been obliterated. Notice how that Colossians passage doesn't say, it does not say that the law has been obliterated. It has said your debt to it has been obliterated. There's a difference. The law still stands today as a mirror to this world. These are God's standards. You haven't met them. You need Jesus. That's what the law communicates. And what does the law communicate to us? Thank God we have Jesus because I couldn't do these things. It's a constant reminder of our need for grace, and it's a constant reminder to the world that they need Jesus really bad. Really, that they need grace. This is huge stuff. It's just, we know these things. We hear these things. This, this is, friends, this is the gospel. That's what this is. 
When we gaze upon the law, we shouldn't see a list of things that we need to do. We shouldn't strategize and plan on how I'm going to nail this list this week and that list this week, and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to do these two things, and that's going to make God more happy with me. No, what we should do is when we look at it, we should see and rejoice in the fact that Jesus did these things perfectly, and I could never do them. Thank you, Jesus. We should worship him for that. Stop performing, stop playing religion, stop listening to the crooks and the swindlers that teach that you can earn something from God. Stop listening to your sinful nature that likes to whisper, earn it, earn it, earn it. Start believing that everything you need is in Jesus Christ, that he is sufficient, that his blood purchased your salvation and washed away your sin, that his righteousness has made you perfectly righteous before God. There's nothing you can do to add or subtract from it. Just live according to his grace, resting in his grace, constantly reminding you. You're, we're constantly reminding yourself, preach this to yourself. It's all in Jesus. He did it all. It's done. It's done. It's done. I don't have to perform. It's done. He performed. He's perfect. He was somebody, so I don't have to be somebody. Start believing that everything you need is in Jesus, that he is sufficient, that his righteousness is enough. That is good news, man. That's the gospel. During the ninth hour, Cornelius received a vision from God. That vision was the starting point for Cornelius' journey into the gospel of Jesus Christ. When and how did your journey into the gospel of Jesus Christ begin? Can you remember back that far? Can you remember when and how it all started? Do you even ponder the gospel today? What it means? Do you explore its depth, richness, and beauty? One of the most tragic things in the church today is that it has moved away from the gospel of Jesus. It has exchanged the gospel for clever and creative self-help, or for what I like to call the half gospel. The half gospel sounds a little like this. Repent, believe, pray a prayer, get baptized, join the church, and move forward into Christendom. The gospel has done its work, so it's time to move on to other things. That is mainstream American Christianity, friends. Rather than producing disciples of Jesus Christ, we are producing powerless, addicted, self-absorbed, insecure, joyless, non-missional consumers because we've left the gospel, because we're not proclaiming what's been proclaimed to you today every week. It's the gospel. This is what happens when you preach that half gospel, when you this, it's what happens. You produce these addicted, self-absorbed, consumeristic, insecure, joyless folks. It's what happens when you continually offer your congregation only half of what Jesus secured for them. It's what happens. I pray that the gospel, I pray that the gospel would be the message that dominates this pulpit and church in all of its beauty and splendor and facets whether we're talking about the righteousness that we've received, the blood atonement that was made, the great exchange, whatever it would be. There's so many different 
things to talk about in facets. I pray, my prayer, is that this pulpit would ever and always, the gospel would be coming forth from it. I pray that we would, like the angels, we would be like the angels in that they never grow tired of looking into the gospel. If angels are higher than us and smarter than us and more capable, and the scripture says in 1 Peter that they never tire of looking into the gospel, wow, the gospel must be pretty broad, huh? I pray that we'd be like them, that we would never grow tired of the gospel. I pray that our love for Jesus would grow and blossom as we dive a little further into the gospel each week. And I pray that our message as a church to this community would be the gospel. That that's what we would be proclaiming. You don't have a righteousness of your own. You need the righteousness of Jesus. He's the perfect lamb that made a a sacrifice, an atonement for sin. You can't do it on your own. You need him. It's a real thing. However you express that. I'll close with this quote from Jesus plus nothing equals everything, which is a book I just recently read with a bunch of people. Listen carefully. All the pardon. The approval, the purpose, the freedom, the rescue, the meaning, the righteousness, the cleansing, the significance, the worth, and the affection we crave and need are already ours in Christ. We don't need to add anything to it. The operative power that makes you a Christian is the same power that keeps you a Christian. The unconditional, unqualified, undeserved, unrestrained grace of God in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, friends.